The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 8 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 7th of November 2019 from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. Welcome to Squawk Ident. Today marks a very special episode where Aviator Tony conducts his very first interview. Let's get right to the audio from that interview, and we hope you enjoy the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on this episode of Squawk Ident, we are very fortunate to have an aviator whose career progression has had its shares of both positive progressions and major pitfalls. He's a top-notch pilot, a King Air flight instructor, corporate captain, a Western grape bird strike survivor, a loving father, and just a class act guy. Please help me in welcoming to the show, Captain Roger. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Roger, we've known each other for what now? Uh, What's it been, 11, 12, 15 years? I think it's uh, it's probably coming up on about fifteen because I think it's around two thousand five or so. Yeah, yeah, this is amazing to have. Uh, you know, we met in this uh, beginning of both of our aviation careers here as flight instructors in uh, Chandler, Arizona, and uh, we got some some memories uh, shared there with some flight students and our bosses at the uh, the flight school, and I mean, some pretty cool stuff, yeah. That that is definitely a true story there, especially the bosses, coworkers, um, you know, just starting out, being a lot younger and, and and forming those first memories of joining the aviation workforce. Yeah. So what uh, what really excites me about this interview is, first of all, I don't know if you know this, but you are my number one, my first interview on Squawk Ident. And this is really special because. You know, we've kind of shared a lot of uh, history together. We've shared stories over the years and, you know, talk about knowing that the struggle is real. This is, you know, we've taken different paths uh, over the years. And, you know, I always kind of use what you've gone through as a meter. And (laughs) I hope you don't uh, (laughs) find offense to that, but, you know, you've really had some, some pretty good ups and downs. And and I was hoping to talk to you about that today. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's definitely been a, a, an interesting road. I'm honored to be here. Um, I mean, just for you to ask and and knowing that I'm your first guest, you know, I don't, (laughs) we'll see how it goes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, share some of my stories or, um, with your audience. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about how you got started, you know? So from what I understand, UC Davis graduate, right? Uh, taking nutrition kind of on that road to follow in the family footsteps and get into the medical field. And then something happened and you decided to go into aviation. What, what made you do that? Uh, two words, organic chemistry. 
<laughs> so it, it was that bad, huh? It was it was that bad. You know, I had always enjoyed aviation. Uh, my dad was a was a doctor. He's a family practitioner, and the Air Force had paid for his medical school. And we lived in Guam for. I was born at Travis Air Force Base, and then we moved to Guam for a few years. And and Guam's kind of in the middle, not kind of, but is in the middle of the ocean. And if you want to go anywhere, you have to fly. And I I always loved flying. Um, you know, growing up. I loved flying, but from a career, I never thought about going into it um, as a career. And then I I went to to Davis. I was on the pre-med track and organic chemistry was that bad. I, I knew that it was I knew it was not going to be good for me when the the average on the first midterm we took was a 25 percent. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I got a 43 Uh, but at at that point, I just, I didn't want to study that hard. And I kind of, I had to do some introspection and look at it, you know, Roger, maybe, maybe if you don't want to do organic chemistry here, your second year of college, are you really going to make it all the way through medical school? Um, cause while I'm a fairly bright guy, I, you know, I just didn't want to put the time and effort into it. And it was at that point that, well, if you're not going to go into medicine, what are you going to do? And so I, I went back, well, what are some things that you enjoy? And flying was the other thing that I, that I thought I would enjoy. I had never really done it other than riding in the back of, of military airplanes. Primarily my family never flew anywhere. Um, and I went down to the local airport and I said, I want to learn to fly. And they said, well, you need to go get a medical. I said, well, okay. And that medical cost me 70 bucks. And at that point I had spent money on it and I was going to see it it through. (laughs) Oh, here we are. So that was 2003, I guess. So here we are 12 or 13 years later. (laughs) Yeah. Still trying to get rid of it. So you, when you decided to get into aviation, I mean, that's a pretty big leap. And I know it's scary for a, a lot of people, especially young men or women that, are looking at a career in aviation and just think, wow, look at the, they get the flyer planes and, and the glamour of someday working for, you know, whatever that's going to be, whether it's corporate or cargo or, or even an airline. So what is the first step? Like what is the turning point other than going and just saying, okay, I'm going to get my medical and I'm going to get started. What was your track? What was your journey? We all have kind of a little bit of a different spin on it, but what was your first flight school like? My first flight school, it worked out really well for me. Um, when I was at Davis, which is just a little bit to the west of Sacramento, um, college town, I, I, there's a little airport down there. I think it's 3,000 foot strip, 50 feet wide. Um, and I simply went down there and it worked out because it was only, you know, a, a couple miles from where I was going to school. Because I went to school full time. I still graduated and I decided to do flying while I was still in school full-time. And basically when I had time outside of class um, is when I went down, I did the whole program 61 while I was in school, um, part 61. um, And basically going to school, getting a degree in nutrition, and then going to the airport and flying around for a couple hours and coming back and going to, you know, biochemistry or whatever, whatever my next class was. I did... It took me about a, it took me about nine months to get my private pilot certificate. Um, then the summer that was it. I got my 
ticket over Easter or spring break. And then the next school year, I went back to do my instrument rating. Um, the, my last year of school, I finished that up in about four months. Got my instrument ticket at winter break. And then I just started doing some time building again. We, you know, while I was going to school, while I was working, trying to fund the whole process. Um, and then kind of from there, I, I, I carried on. And after I graduated and, and did the fast track program in order to get, you know, all the way through the CFI so I could start getting paid to fly instead of having to, to shell out for that money or for, for that flight time. Sure. And so you primarily were in what kind of airplanes? Was it Cessnas or Pipers or what was it? Yeah, I flew a Cessna 152 until I had to do my instrument. And then the Cessna 152s were not instrument certified. And I worked my way up into the Cessna 172 Heavy. Nice. <laughs> well, she, she was a beast back then. Well, I, to me. You know, I remember the truck. Remember the truck? That uh, Seneca the, one? That Seneca? Yeah, the, the number one. Yeah. Yeah, that was, well, there's, yeah, we'll just call it the truck. The truck. There's some other, other stories behind that airplane, but. It was like flying a semi truck, man. It, it was, so, oh man, underpowered and just heavy and. And heavy on landing. Oh. Yeah, to grab that wheel and give it two big trim wheels up because otherwise you're going to plow the nose wheel into the ground. Oh, that's right. You remember, that's right. Was that with you when uh, we went to Williams Gateway that one night and, uh, you said, watch this, and you grabbed the trim wheel and just spun it back like four times and it touched down perfectly right in the flare. And I was like, wow, that's a good one. That was probably, yeah, that was probably us. I remember we did that a couple of times and I remember flying that airplane around and doing instructor instructing in that, yeah. um, teaching one of the instructors over there. Yeah, that, I mean, that was the trick with that Seneca. If you didn't grab that trim wheel and spin it back two or three times uh, right before you flared, it was going to be a tough landing, wasn't it? Ugly. Yeah. Ugly. <laughs> well, so your progression at, uh, as a flight instructor was great. That's when we met. Um, I think we hit it off right away. I mean, I, at that time, my daughter was just born or she was, I think Julie was pregnant and she was going to have Mia and, you know, we didn't trust many people with our child. We had mom and dad. We had her mom and dad. And then we had Roger, who was the person that we, the only person that we trusted with our daughter. And you hooked, you hooked us up a few times and watched our, our daughter. And why is that? What what was it that we uh, we saw in you? Was it because you were the oldest of how many sisters? Well, what you saw in me, I, I, I will never know. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm the oldest of four. I have three younger siblings. Um, and also both my parents were the oldest in their families. And so all of I, you know, I have quite a few cousins and they're all younger than me just because both my parents happen to be the oldest in their family as well. And so, you know, they didn't, they didn't have any brothers or sisters that had kids before them. And I am, I'm paving the way, showing everybody else what not to do, as I like to say. <laughs> well, I tell you, you know, we hit it off, you know, and I just saw something not not just with your character, but with your work ethic, you know, and, and it really showed on the flight line as well. And I remember a lot of your students uh, would would come to me and just give you nothing but praise at that time. It was a really good time, I think, uh, for any aviator uh, when you're flight instructing because you're learning and you're teaching and you're kind of, 
you know you've mastered a craft when you are able to teach it to someone else. And when you teach it well and the feedback is nothing but positive, that's a, a huge accomplishment. And I just have to commend you for doing such a great job at that time in your career. Um, in that phase, you were just in an amazing place with great feedback and man, it just talk about good history, good stories there. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And you know, that's one of those things that I've always, that I always have believed in, you know, have, have your own integrity, work hard and things should work out for you. Absolutely. And so you progressed. Now I remember both of us went to go interview at a regional uh, that we both interviewed the same day, flew out together. And after a period of time, we got the little letter, the little envelope in the mail uh, saying, thank you, for, but you know, try again in six months. And I know I felt kind of hurt and devastated, but at the same time, I thought, well, you know, it was only my first interview. Um, and we kind of, that's where our paths kind of, I think, went in two different directions. I, you know, had a child at home and I invested a lot of time and effort and money into uh, changing a career to go from my previous career into an aviation career. And I just felt like I, I needed to get a job immediately. So, you know, you know, my history, I immediately put my application out to, to anyone that would hire or was hiring at the time. And you decided to, to stick it out. And eventually, you made it into a 135 operator. Now, how did that happen? Well, truth be told, you know, I remember going to going to that interview with you and having such high high hopes. You know, just walking through the terminal, especially for me, who who was very was pretty young at the time. Um, you know, I was probably what 22, 23 years old. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, walking through the terminal with you uh, and and those expectations and, and to get the first dreaded thanks but no thanks letter um, definitely was, you know, OK, this is real. You know, it's not just show up, show up to the interview and you get a job. Um, yeah, that was that was quite the the first experience there in terms of how I got into the, the 135 world. In all honesty, I tried to, I tried to take a shortcut. Um, if if I'm really being honest, um, you know, you went to the regional airline that you went to, and I I left very soon after you did, and it was mostly because I wanted to work for, um, I had I had this dream of working for Southwest, you know, that was the only airline that I had really ever flown on. Uh, mostly that was be just because Southwest happened to be the airline that flew between Sacramento and San Diego, which is where I grew up. Um, and Sacramento where I was, where I had gone to school. Yeah. Um, and Southwest had a requirement at that time of a thousand hours of turbine PIC. And so my theory at the time was as short sighted as it was, was that if I went to this 135 outfit, I would spend a little bit of time in you know, a piston powered airplane. And then I would upgrade into, into a turboprop and that would be able, I would then be, be logging turbine PIC. Uh -huh. Now in that, while that strategy was correct, because I was, I got offered an upgrade after only seven months, the, 
many other things about it were not quite, you know, I, I have nobody in my family or friends or anyone that had done aviation. I didn't really know what I was getting into. I was a little young and naive and just that's when I really started learning about the industry, about what about what this industry was going to take in order to make it and what was more truth versus purchase what was more a little bit of some fiction that I was making up in my head, probably. Sure. So, okay, so you went to the fly charter and that kind of, I remember you calling me and telling me, what the heck did I get myself into? (laughs) So I believe that. And you're like, man, I'm sitting on the sofa all day in operations and they're not using me. And so then an opportunity came by. Uh, for you to put in an application into another carrier, another regional carrier. I don't know if you want to divulge that information. If not, that's fine. But tell me a little bit about that. So I was flying from Rifle, Colorado, and I was flying back to Denver, which was um, a run that I had done regularly at that time and was climbing through 16,000 feet coming out of Rifle and all of a sudden, there was uh, the, the cockpit got much quieter, and the airplane just kind of started yawing around a little bit. And as it had happened, the manifold pressure on uh, on the right engine had dropped off. I didn't have an engine failure completely, but what had happened was that the um, that the supercharger had failed on the right side, and so I had to make and emerged what amounted to an emergency landing in Aspen because I wasn't going to be able to make it back to Denver over the mountains. And so I'm sitting in Aspen and I checked my email and I had, I had an email for um, an, an invitation to come interview um, at, at a regional airline. And at that point I had been there for about seven months at the 135 carrier um, flying cargo and I was pretty much, please, yes, just get me out of here. I don't like this is not what I thought it was going to be. And let's let's take the next step. Maybe I do need to go and, and do what everybody else does and join a regional airline, uh-huh. which is e- eventually what I did do. I did go and I did do the interview. I was offered the position. And so back in 2007 is when I started my regional airline career. And you found a, a good job flying for a kind of a new spin on that regional carrier's uh, business plan, which was to do some branded flying. For those of our uh, listeners that don't understand, a regional carrier usually is contracted out to a mainline carrier, like one of the big three, for example, like American, United, or Delta. And they'll contract out a regional flying to do a lot of their feed from some of the smaller airports into the hubs so that passengers can, you know, connect from some of the outlying areas that have smaller airports and maybe not as much traffic. So the airline that you uh, were working for at the time decided to do some branded flying and they're flying out of uh, Ontario, California, which is in my neck of the woods. And uh, it was very promising, brand new airplanes, brand new regional jets. And then it quite didn't pick up as much as they expected, did it? Well, there was a whole lot of other things that were that were going on at, at that time. Um, but yeah, it was great at the time. I mean, it, I I worked for ExpressJet Airlines, which you know pretty much anyone can find out. They're the ones that did the branded operation. 
I was from Southern California. They had a Southern California base flying, like you just said, uh, brand new airplanes. It wasn't the hub and spoke model. We could leave Ontario and not come back to Ontario for four days yeah. and not see, and which was, which was pretty cool. Um, the passengers were pretty happy. The pilots were, were pretty happy. And it was, I mean, it, it was great. I mean, for what it was worth at the time, unfortunately, things started unraveling on a, on a national scale, you know, even, you know, on an international scale, if there was, you know, kind of the perfect storm of a whole bunch of things that happened at that time. Um, so the economic downturn kind of really played a role. In- the economic downturn and the, and the oil, I mean, oil going up to $140 a barrel and that's what shut that operation down. Yeah. And, and they stopped flying the branded flying. There was some other stuff we were doing some Delta flying and the Delta flying stopped. So that, that ended the California presence completely. And there was a pretty sizable reduction in force furlough, um, that happened just over a year after I started. And I was, I mean, well into the group that did get furloughed. And so, Barely just over a year after I'd started is when I experienced my first furlough. Wow. In, and the, in the, the credit F word in aviation, you know, a lot of people think it's something else. No, it's furlough. Uh, you, you never want to hear that. Uh, and, and, but you lived through it. You, you spent some time up in Sacramento, right? Uh, doing some uh, river rafting guiding, right? I, I did. I, I had financed a lot of my, my flight training, when I was in college doing river, I was a river rafting guide over the summers when I was going to school. And, you know, in the end, back then I made more money taking people down the river and having fun um, than I would, than I would have um, flying airplanes. And so I did that um, for, for that summer. And, you know, I, kind of regret that you know really i got married well back then in my in my personal life things were kind of colliding you know i'd gotten a job at express jet in 2007 i got married a year just under a year after i'd started at express jet the economy started tanking i knew i was going to get furloughed i knew that i had to make money i went and i did the river rafting but what that did was I got married, and then about two weeks after I got married, I oh. then left for three months Man, that, uh, and went camp and lived in a tent two weeks after I got married. And it had to have been hard. I mean... It was, I, it was incredibly hard. It was, it was not good. There was... It was not good. I'll just kind sure. of leave it at that. So, um, you know, you went through the you struggle. Know, you, you, you had to fall back on really what was maybe not even plan B, but plan C to make ends meet. And now here you are with new responsibilities um, and not just married, but married with a couple kids from, from your, uh, your wife at the time um, from a previous marriage. So you were full on, 
not just like, oh, we're starting out and it's going to be tough, but no, no, you're a father, you're responsible, you've got a, a new a bride, you've got a couple of kids now that you're responsible for, or at least co-responsible for in some degree, and and you had to go up to Sacramento and River Raft because you got furloughed uh, a year after you get hired. That's just a tremendous amount of weight for anyone to have to to deal with. But how long did that last? That didn't last very long, did it? Well, I, we, the, the rafting was for about three months. And then um, I, came, I came back home, um, which was in Phoenix at the time. But I came back to not having a job. You know, I, at least I had been pulling a paycheck. But now I had um, come home and had no income, didn't really know what I was going to do. As you, as you may remember, you know, you were fortunate enough that you got in earlier and, and, you know, you were working through that, but it, like, if you turned on the news, which I did because I had the time, it was doom and gloom. And yeah, I remember. Yeah. Because even, even then I, I remember talking to you about it and saying, man, just, you know, you should just come over to, to the regional airline that I was flying for at the time. And, uh, but they were furloughing too. I mean, it wasn't just, everybody was furloughing. Nobody was hiring and actually everybody was, was furloughing and you, and I got all this time on my hands and I turn on the news and you can't escape it. The stock market's tanking about, you know, a thousand points. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their homes. Um, and it, it was a dark, it was a dark time in my life. Um, you know, not really sure what I was going to do. Right. And then the, uh, through family member, through a happenstance, uh, of, uh, was it your, your parents that sent out a Christmas letter and, you know, kind of explaining what's going on with the family and, a friend of the family read the letter and said, well, wait a minute, my son, uh, he's in the industry. Let's see if we can get our kids together and, and maybe there's something they can help each other out. And what, take it from there. What happened then? That was pretty much how it happened. There's, you know, my parents wrote a Christmas letter out and just friends of the family that they had had for a long time. Um, one of their kids, um, was, was involved with another, small feeder cargo carrier. And I was able to get an interview and actually get a job about six months, it was about six months um, after I'd gotten furloughed. And so I ended up taking that job. I mean, that was kind of no question. It was a no brainer getting that job. And that was what I did. I flew um, feeder cargo operations again during, for the rest of my my time being furloughed. Yeah. And, and I remember you were flying a beach 99, correct? I was flying a beach 99. Yes. Yes. So, you know, a lot of, uh, up and down, but you were home every night. So quality of life was a little bit better, even though it wasn't the job that you really set out to start on, but, you know, grateful that you were flying, grateful that you, you were able to, to find a position. And then just about 10 years, a little bit over 10 years ago, today uh something major happened to you and i remember when you called me did you call me from the hospital or just after you got out of the hospital or 
I mean, what I could not answer that question. Who I called when at what point? It's it's, it's kind of a little hazy. Uh, there might have been some drugs involved there. <laughs> yep. Well, well, from the uh, KOLD News in uh, in Arizona, uh, about ten years ago. Uh, and, and I'm going to let you kind of get into the details, but it, they said there that it was smooth flying for a pilot over the skies of Arizona until a bird came crashing through the front windshield of his twin engine cargo plane. The impact left a bloody mess in the cockpit and forced an emergency landing in Sholo. The impact shattered the pilot's side windscreen. The pilot is... Our very own Roger suffered minor cuts and bruises to his face and splattered bird parts across the inside of the aircraft. Uh, this is uh, what Ian, or Ian Greger of the FAA spokesperson uh, indicated to the, uh, the journalist that was writing the article. I said, Dan Marys of KOLD News. But when I read that, and, and after talking to you, there's such a disconnect of what really happened. And I mean, that just sounds like, Oh, a bird went through the window and oh yeah. Okay. But what, I mean, give it to us. Let me hear it. What in your words, I remember you telling me about it and you woke up that morning, you're running a little bit behind schedule. Uh, You you didn't get your contacts in. So you throw your glasses on and you just made it to the airport on time. And it was a beautiful day to fly. Right. You know, the the most succinct way to put it, I thought I was going to die. I thought it was, I, I honestly thought it was all over. Um, you know, the, doing, doing the job that I did, we had early, early morning flying. And so we typically, I would typically have to be at the airport around five o'clock in the morning or so. And we would launch between six and six thirty in the morning. And then we'd come back later in the evening. But this one was, a departure from Phoenix International Airport. It was um, yep, uh, ten years ago, <laughs> about to the day. Um, launched typical November day out of Phoenix, clear, cool. Um, was flying about uh, 120 mile, I think, flight or so from Phoenix out to Sholo. It had been uneventful. And I had start. I had just started the descent into Sholo Airport, which is an uncontrolled field, no tower. I was not talking to air traffic control or anyone at that point. I had I had just made a call on the CTAF, the Common Traffic Advisory Frequency, letting the airport and the airport environment and anyone else in the area know, you know, where I was coming from, about twenty miles out to the to the west, and. Then it was like a a bomb had gone off in the airplane. Um, I I did not know what happened as it as it was. I had made that call on the the traffic frequency, and another airplane had just departed, and he was headed back towards Phoenix. You know, we he was climbing through you know eight eighty five hundred feet or something. I was descending at eleven thousand feet. We were separated by about twenty miles, but. When you're at about 11,000 feet, what do you hit? You know, you hit airplanes. And so, you know, initially, I had no idea what had happened. I thought I must have hit this other airplane. I remember just kind of thinking, it's over. You know, this is how it's going to end. And I remember looking out the, the, right, the right window 
thinking, just expecting to see the ground hurtling towards me and how my wife was going to be upset that I, I died without telling her. Um, and it's, it's amazing how fast your brain works. You know, it, you know, I can tell this story that can take, I mean, you know, 10 minutes and in reality, all these thoughts go are going through, going through my mind and, you know, in, in split seconds. Um, but I looked out the window and it looked normal. And, and then I worked my way from the right side of the airplane and I came across to um, the instrument stack and all of the instruments were reading the same as they, just like they should. And then I kept moving from the instruments and then I got to the front windscreen right in front of me and there was a big gaping hole at the top, the top portion of the windscreen and the rest of it was completely opaque um, from from the glass shattering and I saw a, a tuft of feathers that got caught kind of right where the, the windscreen was and the fuselage of the airplane. And that's when it hit me and it clicked. Oh, okay. I must've hit a bird. And then all of a sudden after that realization, that's when things started. I, I realized I was hurt. There was blood everywhere. I remember at that point, my head hurt and I put my hand up to my head and I thought half my head was gone. It was just a warm, bloody, matted mess on my head. My hand was covered in blood. Um, there was glass and blood all over the place. Um, like you had mentioned, you know, it was a five o'clock, you know, we had a five o'clock show at the airport in the morning and I didn't always put my contacts in. And I, this particular morning I had put my glasses on and my glasses were gone. I had no idea where my glasses were. It was loud as all get out. My headset was gone. Um, and it, it, you know, then all of a sudden it's kind of like, okay, well it, that operation and, and, and a lot of 135 cargo operations, it's single pilot. And I was Self. And I remember sitting, I, I distinctly remember sitting there after going through, after all this had happened and thinking to myself, well, Roger, there's nobody else here. You better fly the damn plane. And that's when the adrenaline started kicking in. And, you know, I, I think looking back on it, that I'm pretty proud of myself for, for doing the things that I did. Um, you know, after landing was, is kind of a different story, but, um, you know, there I was, I didn't, you know, we didn't have GPS in those airplanes. We didn't have autopilot in, in those airplanes. And so I was, here I was flying along hurt with a terrible headache. I wasn't sure how much blood was, how much was the birds. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's and amazing. Just you kept it together the whole time. You just, you just, yeah. you, you kind of reasoned through it logically. You kept it together and so you couldn't see forward. How did you land the airplane? Well, you, you know, by the time I got to landing, it was okay. By the time I actually figured out where I was, I found the airport within an ADF and an NDB. Um, and I, I, I ended up kind of winding up on a 45 to a right downwind entry. And that was all okay. Because at that point, when you're flying, a, and I was in the right traffic pattern, you know, you're looking out the right side of the airplane. And it was about 500 feet after I was on final that things kind of started to, to go sideways again. You know, um, that's when I kind of lost a little bit of the visual. But you, know, you still have the front right wind, windscreen. 
and the uh-huh. you get to the ground, you know, you, the more you can see out of all the other windows. I was a little worried. I, I remember getting close to touchdown and I, I kind of, I balked at it a little bit and I, I pulled back on the yoke. Um, and I didn't add any power. And again, that's one of those things that I distinctly remember going through my mind and it was what Roger. So it's going to be better the next time you do this. And I, I took the power levers <laughs> and I pulled it back to the stop and I pitched back and then I just waited. And I, I did, I touched down that the stall warning horn did go off. I would touch down a little bit left of center line. Um, and at that point I knew it was over and that's when that, that release of adrenaline happened. And I, I was on landing rollout and I just started bawling. Um, and things kind of got a little, I kind of lost a little bit of my focus at that, <laughs> at that point after getting the plane to the ramp, mostly because I knew at that point that I was going to live. Cause up until that point, I, I really wasn't sure what was going to happen. Yeah. And, and you, you were able not only to get the airplane off the runway, but you continued your taxi to the tie down. Is that right? I continued the taxi to the ramp. As it turned out, I parked the plane someplace different than I thought I had. And then I also couldn't, I, I couldn't for the life of me figure out how I was supposed to turn the airplane off. <laughs> I remember there was a firefighters out, outside, you know, waiting, waiting for me to emerge. Cause you know, they saw this big gaping hole. Um, but I, as I remember thinking is, Oh, well, I'm going to, ch- I'm going to kill the firefighters. Cause I, I can't figure out how to turn the airplane off. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> was, it was, I was kind of a mess. Um, after, after landing. Um, but up and up until that point, it, it you know, like when, when people ask about, you know, emergencies and how you're going to respond, I've now had that experience that even in an emergency, like I have full confidence that I will be able to at least keep my cool because I've lived, yeah. I, I've, I've done it. I thought I was going to die. There was nobody else there. I was not like I could talk to anybody else. My headset was gone. I mean, I, I have no communications. I'm injured, uh, you know, 18 stitches in my head. There's blood, glass, I can't see, and I kept, I kept, it, I kept it together. And I think yeah. that's the most important thing. In the end, I think that that's the most important thing, is just being able to keep your cool so that you can at least be able to logically think through some of the things that you know, do happen in airplanes from time to time. And you know, it's funny that you said that because uh, over the years I've read many stories and articles about how you know, aviators in general, at least career aviators that have been doing it long enough, they have a little bit of experience behind their belt. Um, they wanted to see the stress patterns of pilots. So they would put them in the cockpit and they had hooked them up to, um, you know, all kinds of equipment to see if their heart rate can get higher, their blood pressure would go higher, and they would throw emergencies at them in the simulator. And after just time and time again, throwing the worst possible scenarios at them. These pilots, their heart rates elevated a little, but they never really got into that uh, that stress level, you know. And they they had to scrap the study, from what I understand from reading from that article. I I'll try to find it and see if I can put it in the show notes. But um, and it, it sounds like from what you're telling us that you really kind of went through the same thing, and you kind of logically kind of just pieced it together, kept it together. You absolutely performed uh, just 
amazingly to get that airplane safely on the ground, to keep yourself as safe as possible after such an emergency. And to see these photos are, you know, it's just amazing. And, and I read the NTSB report a little earlier again, uh, as I was prepping for, for this interview and, you know, even the NTSB report, it, it just is a testament to how much you kept it together. And, uh, you know, Hey, good job, man. (laughs) I've said it a hundred times to you, but man, it's so impressive that, that you've lived through that and you were able to pull that off like that. Thank you. I, you know, I appreciate it. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, I'm sure you've heard it before, you know, the, the job of a pilot is, is years of boredom punctuated by moments of terror. Um, right. that's part of the job. And in the end, you know, the pay, you know, the, the job of a pilot isn't what we do generally on an everyday basis. It's for when those those things outside the scope of of normal procedures that that that's what we train for. And that's the expectation. Yeah, that's that one flight that may have happened to you in, in the last five years. You know, all the other flights are they're great. They're fine. But that one flight, that's where you earned your entire salary for those five years, you know, yep. and. And and that's really how what it all boils down to, and that's that's what you're getting into when you decide, oh, I want to go fly airplanes for a living, you know. Um, but your story doesn't end there, does it? It you know you you did some more flying after you recuperated uh, from such an ordeal, and you know I remember you were being interviewed uh, by not just local news agencies but also the Associated Press, and you know you had some time off, and as soon as you were medically cleared. And you were able to come back to the flight line. You did, did some time at Ameriflight, and then you got the call, didn't you? Then I got the call back from ExpressJet that um, that things had started turning around, and they ExpressJet was was bringing everybody back. And it was at that point that I was, you know, you know, I a couple years ago or years before I had no job, and at this point I had two jobs. And I was going to have to make a decision on whether I was going to, you know, which path I was going to go, um, you know, stay at Ameriflight, where by that time I had had a, a fairly decent schedule um, or go back to the airlines, especially since I was, I, you know, going back to the, my original first story was I was getting that turbine PIC time. Um, right. But in the end, I did decide that that going back to ExpressJet was going to be the better course, the, the better option for me. And and so I went back to ExpressJet. Yeah. And you were based, was it uh, Chicago for a while? Initially, after I first went back, I was based out of Chicago, um, O'Hare, doing the commute, which I, I know you know well. Hell yeah. Uh, so I, had, I, was, I was going up to Chicago and... Uh, eventually I did that. Oh, I guess it was probably maybe eight months. Cause I remember I did a summer and I, I did a winter and then a summer out of O'Hare, which, which was plenty for me. And then I did a base transfer down to Houston, which is, which is where I, I spent the duration of my career at express jet for the next three years. And correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't, uh, you get offered an upgrade at uh, your time at ExpressJet at some point? No, I no, I never got the the option to upgrade. Even when I left after I was coming up on my five year anniversary, I was still a 
I was still a couple hundred numbers away from upgrade, which is one of the reasons that I that I actually chose to to leave at the time was just because the progression was was taken too long. So you were you finally made it back to a regional with this idea of, you know, spending some time there as an FO, then you know, getting your quality of life a little bit better by uh, getting to an airport that was a little bit easier commute for you and then you know hoping to upgrade hoping to you know get in the left seat earn a little bit more money have a quality of life improve for you but that just didn't happen fast enough and some exciting news yes. happened during that time as well when you had not one but two little ones come into your world uh not at the same time but within a few years <laughs> Of each other, correct? Yeah, that's it's. There's a whole lot of hoping there going on at, at my career, at at the regionals. And during that time, I did have, I have, I had two kids, and again, there was just a confluence of things that happened that that negatively impacted how I how I wanted to live. Maybe, um, you know, there was the the Colgan accident that um, I, I don't know if you've talked about before, but it had a, a pretty sizable, at least a marked impact on the industry, especially at the regional airlines. And I had just had a couple kids. And then what happened was when the FAR 117, I think it's 117, um, the new rest rules came out. And, you know, I was, you know, I think we had probably maybe 3,000 pilots or so at that point in time. I was only a couple hundred, two or 300 numbers away from upgrade. So I was a fairly senior FO at the time. I, I was, I did have a decent schedule. I was commuting. Um, I could bid and hold commutable trips relatively easily. And I would regularly have 14 or 15 mm -hmm. days off. But then after is January of 2014, as I recall, that the the new rest rules came out and the bid packets starting in 2014, I was going from being able to credit, you know, 90 hours and only working 15 or 16 days a month to all of a sudden, even at my, I, my pretty senior FO status, I was now minimum days off working, having minimum days off, which was 12 at, um, at yeah. that company at the time. So I've got minimum days off. I've lost three days off. And now my credit line is 75 hours. I am literally working more or being gone more in order to get right. paid And were the, those lines, to add insult to injury, they weren't even commutable, were they? And there was a lot fewer the commutable lines because what was happening was that, you know, we lost productivity in the trips because in order to meet the rest requirements, well, basically, that just says you can't fly. And instead of flying during this time, we need you to rest. But that's going, you know, which I understand and, and appreciate the spirit of. It's just the way that it worked in, in the practice in my in my life from a practical standpoint. Um, it really it really destroyed my quality yeah. of life. And like you just brought up, I had just had a couple, you know, I had just had. Uh, my second, my son, and I'm now gone more. I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing my kids. I'm getting paid less. Again, I'm getting hit by this, by this, what I perceived as this perfect storm of, you know, really it was just an unfortunate, some unfortunate events, yeah. but I, I decided that I would 
to try and you know, and look to see if there was other was if there was something else out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, all these scenarios were happening, you know, beyond your control that were reducing your quality of life yet again. I mean, you, you saw it happening with the furlough and, you know, having to go and go work back up in Sacramento as a river rafting guide because you just, you had to make ends meet. And then, you know, things got a little bit better. You found that Ameriflight job, you spent time there, you started getting your turbine PIC time. They had the bird strike incident that could have been a disaster, but thank God that it wasn't, you know, and you were able to, to see through that and things got better. And then, Hey, here's a decision to, to go to a regional carrier because this seems to be the right way to do it, to get the 121 experience. And then, as you mentioned, the Colgan crash. Now I haven't talked about the Colgan crash. Most people in the United States do realize uh, what we're talking about, but just in case they didn't, Colgan Air Flight 3 Four zero seven was uh, marked as a continental connection air airplane or air flight, and it crashed in uh, Buffalo, New York, on Thursday, February twelfth, two thousand and nine. Uh, the NTSB report that came out soon after uh, was very damaging to the flight crew. Um, they marked it as pilot error, and it was. Awful, and this happened really shortly after the miracle on the Hudson flight. Um, and for a period of time, you know, being an aviator in this country, I can remember, you know, just walking around the airport or, or you know, heading to hotel, and people would pat me on the back saying, "Oh yeah, that's Sully, man. He he did a great job. You know, he saved all his lives." And you know, thanks for thanks for doing all that you do. And I'm oh okay, uh, you know, I'm just a. Uh, young pilot at a regional, I'm not a legacy Airbus pilot, you know, but, but okay, thanks. You know, appreciate that. And that happened, that <laughs> lasted like oh, two weeks, maybe, maybe a little longer. I'm not sure exactly the dates, but, um, and then this Colgan crash happened. And then when the news came out, uh, what caused the accident and, uh, the, you know, depending who you talk to, if it's, they say it's lack of experience or, um, you know, pilots that, you know, I don't want to say anything bad or negative or, or be a Monday morning quarterback here, but, the crash happened. It wasn't good. It was pilot error. And Congress actually was the one that initiated uh, a, kind of an emergency decree to, we need to change these rest rules. We need to make it so that pilots need more time before they can operate in an airline environment. They need the minimum 1500 hours and an ATP before you can even be a first officer, where before that, that wasn't the case. A 121 operator, as long as you had a commercial pilot license and you had passed your ATP written and you could get a job at a regional airline. And so, you know, they had different standards of hours, but really there was no regulated hours to get a job. Then FAR 117 came out, a regulation that indicated that we needed to have a minimum of 1500 hours. And there are some exceptions to that with restricted ATPs if you qualify under certain programs, but you had to have 1500 hours minimum and an ATP license in your hand before you can even be a first officer. So again, that combined with the rest rule requirements that increased, which really, you know, helps us in some ways, depending on the scenario, I can tell you some horror stories because of 117 and how we now can fly more than eight hours in a day. Uh, but, you know, this really changed quality of life for a lot of aviators, not so much at the legacy carriers because their contracts are usually a little bit more ironclad. Uh, 
and they have uh, a lot more protections with minimum days, minimum uh, duty regs, so they get paid a minimum hours per day. doesn't matter if you fly one hour or if you fly uh, the five. Uh, I think at uh, Legacy Airlines where I'm working, it's 5.25 or uh, yeah, five, five hours and 15 minutes per day. So it doesn't matter what I fly, as long as if I'm a three-day trip, I'm going to get paid 5.25 times three minimum um, or whatever I fly if it's over. So quality of life for a long period of time at the regionals, especially in the wake of the FAR 117 requirement, did decrease. And that's what, that's what Roger was talking about. So, so you were able to hang on to that job for a little longer. But the quality of life was diminishing. You had two babies at home that you you were missing out on being there. So you made a decision to increase your quality of life. And how did you do that? Well, like I had said, I had, you know, because of all those things that we had just been talking about, I decided to to explore whether there were other options out there. Whether, you know, it's life, life should be better than this. What, what other options do I have? And it, as it so happened, I, I came across a, um, a business very close to my house that, that did King Air instruction. And I went down there and I ended up getting a job as a King Air instructor, which was a ground-based position. We did, um, basically insurance mandated classes. Um, the King Air, most models of King Air with the exception of one of them are under 12,500 pounds. They don't require any type rating. And as far as the FAA is concerned, they're just another yeah. multi-engine airplane, just like you know, Seminole. And, but insurance companies did mandate, you know, cause it's a, it's a high powered turbine airplane. Insurance companies would mandate annual courses. And so the company that I ended up working at was um, a ground-based position. We taught recurrent classes. We taught initial classes. We'd spend the morning in the classroom doing ground school, and we would do afternoon um, simulator sessions. And when I say simulator, it's not the, the full motion fancy simulators uh, that most people might think of. It was just basically a, a static a static advanced air, sure. aircraft training device is actually what it was, um, which was a full mock-up of a a full functioning King Air, but basically just ran off of computers and was non-motion um, with some screen setup, um, some pretty sizable uh -huh. screen setup for visuals. And I was making, I, I did it. I was all contract, um, so I could work or I could not work if I happened to be doing something else. You know, at that point it was kind of, you know, here, there's a class. Can you teach it? Well, yes, I can. Um, but I, I kind of did the math on it and I figured I could be home and I was, I could make about the same amount of money doing that being home every night as I, as I was making even, even coming up on my, on five years at, um, yeah. at ExpressJet. And so I decided to, make that jump for the, you know, for my psyche, for my family. And, you know, I kind of can look back and, and think where, you know, where things might've been had I not done that. But fortunately it's one of the things that I, I think I made a, a good choice with because that time that my kids were that young and having that four or five years home with them during their formative years, I actually, 
I actually am happy and, and think that I did do the right thing. Um, and I actually kind of, I, I, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. And you are able to get a lot of type ratings out of this too, because the, over the years that you've, uh, the past few years, especially, uh, your current employer is buying jets and your, how many type ratings do you have now? I have four type ratings now. Um, and, and none of them really, th- they're not through that job, but what that job was able, what I was able to do is I met people. I taught, I taught people for four years that came in for a two day or a four day or a three day or however many class and that, and that's it. And I saw, and I met a whole lot of people. And over the course of time, um, I, mean, I got, I got job offers all the time. Uh, none of them really ones that I wanted to explore, but, uh, towards, well, what obviously turned out kind of towards the end was I got a job offer, um, for, with somebody local. Um, Hey, we've got, they came in, they needed, they had bought a King Air and they came in for initial training and he had, um, the owner had two airplanes. He, he had this King Air that they were, uh, that they were coming in to, to learn. And he also had a Lear 60 and they liked me. The owner, the owner liked me. He said, Hey, we do, we do a lot of flying. I've got this King Air. I need help flying the King Air. We've got this Lear. I need help flying. You know, the Lear is a Mm -hmm. two pilot airplane. Um, Do you think you might be interested in that? And, you know, at that point, after four years, you know, I was, you know, I'm a pilot. I was kind of starting to get the itch a little bit. I had done some flying, you know, during, during those four years that I was teaching also, but not very much. And, and that itch kind of started to come back. And I was like, you know, you know, maybe getting back into flying and, and flying a jet and this, this could be all right. And, and so I decided to make the jump and I started flying this, this guy's King Air and his Learjet. And then there was another guy that also had a Lear 60. And so I was flying for this other guy that had a Lear 60. And then the, the one guy that had a Lear 60 bought a Falcon 50. And so then I got a Falcon 50 type rating and then they went to a Falcon 2000 and I got a Falcon 2000 type rating. And it just kind of kept snowballing from there. Um, you know, kind of getting your foot in the door. You know, I had a little bit of a different experience. I've kind of had a, a rather rapid progression in the in the corporate world um, that that can't last forever. And even right now, I'm kind of starting to bump up against the ceiling, of, uh, which I understand and which is okay. But um, yeah, it's just meeting people, which that with which that teaching job allowed me to do. And and then I just take the opportunities as they were coming. Hey, you want to fly this? Yeah. Well, sure. Well, do you want to go and fly this? Absolutely. I mean, what kind of questions are those? You ask a pilot, hey, you want to fly a, a bigger, faster airplane? Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Let me think about yeah. that. Okay. So so what's next for you? Because here you are, you've, you're mentioning that you're kind of getting to that point where you've been doing this a little bit and the returns are there, but there's no progression. So what's the goal, at least? Let's, let's put it that way. You know, that's a great question. I ask myself that all the time. I'm fortunate enough that I have, have made it to to this point where things are okay. I, I'm mostly involved in the corporate world now. I do have um, several type ratings. My job title is, you know, I am a captain. 
um, with type rings, primarily in, um, I fly a Falcon 2000 and a, and a Falcon 7X primarily now. Um, you know, the co corporate world is good. There's some advantages to that, but it's also, you know, much more at the whims of, of much sure. fewer people. And so, you know, you kind of get into the corporate world knowing that you're going to have more jobs than, than say the path that you're on where, you know, you're at, um, your legacy airlines and I'd be willing to bet that you're going to be at legacy airlines until you decide well, it's time to hang it up in the corporate. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a much different animal in the, in the corporate world. And so you're always kind of wondering what's going to happen next. I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that I keep taking the opportunities as they come. You know, I, 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 I have to admit that the, that the airline world does have job security and benefits that still are better than, than most of the corporate world. You know, we t I'm sure that you've talked about the, or we'll talk about, about the, the pilot shortage. No, not yet, but, uh, but you know, there's that is definitely on the horizon on topics to share. You know, there's kind of a pilot shortage, but there's only a pilot shortage on those jobs that, you know, that not as many people want to do. There will never be a shortage of pilots for the jobs that everybody wants to do. And that's the same in the corporate world, whether that's at your your Delta Americans and Uniteds of the world um, or flying in the corporate world where, hey, you know, we fly about six or seven days a month and the rest of the time, you know, you're off. Those jobs will always have plenty of job applicants for them. Uh, in the end, if I can get that kind of job in the corporate world, that'd be great. But those jobs are much fewer and farther between. Would it be great to, to get into the legacies? That'd be great too. You know, it's just, it's pick your poison and kind of knowing that it's, there's no quick fix to it. There's no quick way to do it. You kind of, you got to put your time in and, and, and just take the opportunities as they come. Yeah. Well, you know, there is a looming shortage on the horizon and there, you know, we haven't really dove into it yet in a squawk ident, but uh, definitely going to be talking about it in the future. Uh, as you're talking about this, uh, I just looked up a quick article uh, from The Conversation. It's an online article uh, that talks about the national shortage of pilots. Now, they're not canceling flights at legacy carriers or major carriers right now because they can't find people to operate them. Where they are finding the, it hard to operate on a regular basis because of pilots is at the regional scale. And it's because where is a legacy pilot going to get or a legacy carrier going to get a pilot? They're going to go to the experienced pilots. Now, the military, there's not as many pilots coming out of the military as there used to be. And that's simply because the more drones are being used nowadays and drone pilots are, you know, in, a, in an air conditioned room operating uh, in a virtual reality environment. They're not in an aircraft uh, needing, you know, particular ratings and experience and whatnot. And then there's helicopter pilots, which the helicopter pilots, they do have programs out there, but it doesn't translate very well into fixed wing. So you're stuck with pulling from either the corporate world, the cargo world, or the regional world. Well, if you keep pulling from the regional world, you hurt yourself because if you're contracting out, you're flying to these regional carriers, then you know, you're know you going to 
dry up the pool of regional pilots. So regional airlines actually in the past five, six years have started really paying attention and paying uh, first year, second year FOs a tremendous amount of money. It's almost doubled in the past six years. Uh, and according to this uh, article by The Conversation, the U.S. is facing a serious shortage of pilots. This was back in July of 2018 that they issued this. And these numbers uh, are, are pretty accurate. It says, according to the FAA, there were 827,000 pilots in the U.S. in the year 1987. Over the last three decades, that number has decreased by 30%. Uh, however, the International Air Transportation Association predicts that over the next 20 years, air travel will double. So we're talking about doubling the amount of airplanes in the air or air travel. And we've already seen this decrease in trend. And unfortunately, what's going to add insult to injury is the retirement, uh, mandatory retirement age. Now, at right this very moment, it's at 65. That went up from 60 to 65 back in 2009. And that was in an effort to prevent this shortage. And that kind of put everybody, as you mentioned earlier, as that economic downturn happened, this happened as well. And it really prevented uh, retirements from happening, which meant the progression of a pilot was now delayed five years automatically because people could fly longer. Well, I'm looking at the charts here. 2020, they're looking at over 2,000 pilots are going to have to retire mandatory uh, at the American Airlines, uh, all the American Airlines that are out there. Uh, and 2022, it goes up to 2,600 pilots, then 2,700 the year after, 2,800. So we're talking over 20,000 pilots are going to have to retire in the next 10 years. And where are we going to get them from? If we keep pulling from the regionals, well, the regionals aren't going to be able to sustain their current uh, hub-and-spoke uh, system, so something's going to have to happen. And what we're seeing now is opportunity for growth. And at this point, you know, Roger, I really hope that whatever path you decide to take or whatever path presents itself to you, that you're able to get into something that's going to be able to sustain a decent quality of life. It's going to minimize your time away from family. And that is going to give you the growth progression that you want, because you do have a very long career ahead of you. And with your experience, your, your just professionalism, I mean, airlines recruitments out there, if you're listening, you'd be a fool not to hire this guy. I mean, he's got some some great tales to tell and he's made some great decisions. I mean, it, it's he needs to be managing a flight department at a legacy airline in the future. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. So we've talked a little bit about your entire aviation history here this this evening and you know this has been a wonderful trip to come along with you and hear of your struggles of your journey and i know we've only really scratched the surface haven't we yeah there's you know i'm I just like you i'm sure can attest to there's you go through this in this industry for a couple decades and there's a lot of stories <laughs> yes there are and, you know, we're running out of time, um, 
we we actually went a little over. We were having so much fun here. Uh, but I would love to have you back on the show. What do you think? That'd be great. I, 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 it was a great experience. Thanks you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, in the ideal scenario, I thought, who am I going to have on? Oh, it's got to be Roger. You know, with with the incidents that you've had, the struggles that you've had, you know, we've we really have had uh, two separate paths, and you know, I've I've struggled as well. I know we joke around about it uh, now uh, that we look back, but I've been fortunate with my career path. I've been struggling in other ways, um, and you've been kind of struggling with your career path. And <laughs> though you have a great job, I know you love doing what you're doing, and flying in the corporate world is absolutely uh, can be just invigorating with the flexibility and the schedules, and you know, flying into some destinations that I'm sure you know most airline guys don't get to do. Yeah, that you guys would never see, I, you know, taking in an airplane the size of the planes that we fly and, you know, and do a 50, a 50 foot wide strip somewhere. Which is actually something that we're going to be doing in, in not too long. Yeah, yeah. So so I usually start my show with like where I was uh, the week before or if I'm in the middle of a trip and and doing a remote, I'll talk about the trip so far. How can you share with us just a little bit about what you're in the middle of as a about week long trip now? Yeah, I'm on a week long trip. This one hasn't been entirely too exciting, actually. We've um, just kind of had to get some maintenance done, and then we'll we'll be flying some passengers for the next few days. We started out in um, in the Southern California area, and then we flew out to Houston, where you know, the corporate world's a, a lot different than the airline world. You guys fly a lot more than we do. <laughs> we flew out and landed in Houston, and, and I sat for for two days, basically, um, for about forty eight hours. And then uh, just this evening, we we made the long flight from Houston to Austin, Texas. Um, and un- unfortunately, we had to go into Houston Intercontinental this time, which is something oh, we don't normally boy. go to the. And and the reason why is because we actually spent more time taxiing to the runway in Houston today than we did in the air getting from Houston to Austin. Yep. We, yep. I've been there many times. <laughs> but the, the weather in Houston was not so good. Um, you know, fortunately, it, it was a, a help that I had been based in Houston for so long, actually, because we had the longest possible taxi that you can get in Houston um, today. And we spent 35 minutes just getting to the just getting to the runway for takeoff. Um, and then some here in Austin, I'm sitting here for 24 hours and then we're going to do a flight to West Texas and then spend a night there up to Chicago to spend a night in Chicago and then fly back to West Texas for probably another night there. And then we'll go back home to Southern California. It's very rare. Um, if I, if, if we fly two legs in a day, that's a busy day for us. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you definitely have a different schedule than someone in the airline community. And it's thank you so much for sharing it with us today. I want to 
just spend a moment and just say thank you so much for not only coming on a Squawk Ident and sharing your stories with me and with our listeners here, and also just for all that you do. I mean, you're hanging in there, you are living your best life you can, and you're you're out there training people how to fly airplanes, flying in a corporate world, which I just, my hat's off to you because you're doing it all. I've got dispatchers and operation controls and weathermen that are sitting there in in uh, an SOC saying, oh yeah, well, you might want to, we're going to reroute you. I mean, in the middle of flying, you're getting ACARS messages going, uh, we're going to suggest that you request a reroute here because there's some weather ahead. Uh, you know, what do I have to do? Okay, sure, no problem. But you're in it. You're, you know, filing flight plans and, you know, you're you're it. You're your own uh, operation control dispatcher, captain, first officer. Uh, dare I even say your own flight attendant? You got to take care of your passengers. You know they, the you don't have any flight attendants on board, right? We do not have any flight attendants, and that's another big difference. All that, all those things that you were talking about between the airline and the corporate world is, yeah, we are our dispatchers. We are the the. We stock the airplane, we clean the airplane, we fly the airplane and set up transportation for passengers, set up our own hotels. It's There's a lot more work outside of the airplane um, in the corporate world. Yeah. Well, my hat is tipped to you, sir. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I wish you clear. Thank you so much for having oh, me. Absolutely. And you know what? Let's uh, let's have you back on. We're going to we're going to talk off the air here and try to figure out. Uh, what's next and what schedules are like, because uh, I can see this as uh, being a great way to to discuss the struggles in aviation. The struggle is real, all the topics that I usually talk about. Um, and it's great to have a perspective from another side of the uh, the industry. Well, thanks very much, Tony. I appreciate it. And uh, I had a great time. I look forward to being back sometime. Wonderful. And when you get back, uh, we'll definitely get together and uh, share a, a, an IPA or two. You got it. Sounds great. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Our very first interview with a wonderful individual, uh, Captain Roger. You know, it, this has been an absolute treat to be able to have a conversation about how the struggle of becoming an aviator in this modern industry can actually be a completely different road from one pilot to the next. And I'd also like to take this opportunity and thank all the listeners out there that tune in uh, to the Squawk Ident podcast. Every episode is unique in its own way, and I do my very best to bring some interesting content for you. And one way that I can continue to do that is if I get some feedback. From you. So please don't hesitate to send me a feedback, email, voice message, however you want to do it. And maybe you have a topic that you'd like us to talk about on the show. Uh, remember, uh, you can find us at www.av8rtony.com. That's Alpha Victor 8 Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. Or you can just drop us a line from whatever format you're listening to, whatever uh, app you might be listening to this podcast. Uh, also, you can send us emails directly at aviator at tony at gmail.com. So 
Again, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, be safe, and take care of each other.